Hi there, good evening. Thanks for coming in such uh, large numbers. A very, very warm welcome to this, the Cornelian Asset Managers event. I'm Brian Taylor. The day job is uh, the political editor of the BBC in Scotland. As some of you may have noticed, the day job has been intruding rather too much of late, <laughs> given that this is August and I like to turn into a lovey for the, the festival month, but um, the BBC have been commanding rather a lot of my attention, but there we are, these things. I'm absolutely delighted, especially given that, to be here with you tonight to welcome your guest speaker for the evening, Vince Cable, the deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats. Now, my own rough trade of journalism is a very wicked trade, replete with wicked comments, and one of those is to the effect that someone has had a good war. It's a phrase we use to mean that someone has uh, sort of survived or surmounted a crisis and, and contrived to come out the other end by performing well, building or enhancing a reputation. It is undoubtedly true that when it comes to the economic crisis, Vince Cable had an exceptionally good war indeed. His voice was heard at an early period, warning of troubles to come, heard, but unfortunately perhaps not heeded. His voice was heard again, trenchantly analyzing the underlying causes of the, the crisis, the storm, as he calls it in his book on that very topic, um, an issue before us tonight, and his voice is now again to the fore, stressing the extent of the change in political structures and behavior that will be required, perhaps particularly with regard to public expenditure. Vince has had a, a varied career. He was a lecturer at Glasgow University, doubling up in those days as a labor councillor. Yes, a labor councillor in the city. He's been a diplomat and a civil servant, and before his election to the Commons, he was the uh, chief economist with Shell. All of that, and he's a very fine ballroom dancer too. <laughs> and so it gives me de great delight tonight to say to Vince, give us a twirl. No, get, get, get. <laughs> give us your analysis of the economic situation. Will you join me in welcoming Vince Cable? Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your welcome and thank you for coming. Um, this is my second um, address of the day. I, this morning, lunchtime, I had a session on God and the economy. And this is a rather more earthly subject. It's about economics and politics and the relationship between them. And what I want to do is to talk about what I think is actually going on. It's not clear what's going on, but what is happening. And then a little bit about the subject of the book, which is how we got where we are, whether the government and the governments are doing the right thing, and then hopefully I'll draw it together by suggesting what we should be doing. And maybe that will take you into questions. But in terms of what's actually going on, it's deeply confusing. Uh, we get these messages, certainly in the last few weeks, that this crisis is almost over, uh, there was a wonderful headline in that free magazine called Metro that you know you pick up on the railways uh, a few days ago saying 40 days to the end of the recession. <laughs> um, well, they may be right, um, but it caught a mood which I've picked up recently. Uh, stock market booming, houses seem to be selling, uh, industrial production figures don't seem quite as awful as they were. Uh, news of some kind of revival in France and Germany. China, we're told, is booming. I'm not sure how 
people know, but uh, all these apparently positive things taking place. And you might think uh, that all this is finished. You know, the storm's over. You know, we're just waiting for the sun to come through the clouds. And that may be true. It may be true. I don't know. Uh, I would just caution on two things. Uh, first of all, a lot of the indicators that we are talking about are psychological. They're not real. Financial markets, stock markets are very volatile. People are indeed much more confident, and that is actually a good thing in itself. Confidence matters. It's a, an antidote to panic. And so that, yeah, that is positive. But I think the other thing to be careful of is the dangers of predicting the future on the basis of very little amount of data. When I took up my job as chief economist at Shell, I was given a little tapestry with an Arabic saying on it. And when I asked for a translation, I was told that those who claim to be able to forecast the future are lying, even if by chance they're later proved right. And it's a cautionary tale. It could be, it could be that this recession that people have been agonizing about for the best part of nine months is now coming to an end. Uh, it could also be, and there are very plausible people saying this, is that there are such depths and difficulties that we're not and can't expect to emerge from this crisis for a very long time. And that what we may be seeing is an element of a false dawn. I'm not saying that's right, but I think we need to think about plausible alternatives, not to be just carried away by the mood of the moment. What I think has happened is something like this. I think the British economy, but more widely, the British economy has had a massive heart attack, actually. Normally, when you have a recession, you have ups and downs of the economy. It's a bit like a bout of flu. It comes, it goes, there's a fever, and then you go back to normal. This is not like that. It's not like that. There has been a massive cardiac arrest in the system, centered on the banking system, the financial system. Now, it may be, and I hope this is true, that the patient is now on the mend. You know, it's an intensive care unit. Uh, it's had extraordinary treatment from the clinicians. You've had extraordinary resuscitation techniques. We've had very powerful drugs injected into the system, hormones, monetary expansion, desperately low cuts in interest rates, big expansion of the budget, the rescue of the banks. Extraordinary treatment has been thrown at this patient. And it would be surprising if nothing had happened. And of course it has happened. And the patient for the moment has stabilized. And that I think is a reasonable characterization of where we are at the moment. But one thing anybody who's been in a family that, that's had a health crisis of that kind knows is you don't just walk out of the hospital and continue life as normal. It's, life isn't like that. There is a legacy, a big, difficult legacy that we now have to face, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. So that, I think, roughly is where we are. But then the question arises, which is the question I address in this book, which is, how did we get where we are? Why did this problem arise? After all, if you think back a year, the British economy had been sailing along for 15 years or so, ever rising living standards people felt better of. It was true of much of the Western world. You know, where did this drama come from? 
And I think the best way to answer that question is to try to break it down in its components. There were different things happening, building up to this crisis. The first was happening in property markets. Uh, in Britain, in the United States, uh, also Spain, Ireland, but particularly in Britain, you had an extraordinary bubble in the price of property, houses, commercial property. To extraordinary lengths, the relationship between average British house prices, now that's a, you know, what is an average price? Suspend your judgment on that, but an average British house price in relation to income reached the highest levels it had ever reached historically and was actually the highest in the developed world, as far as we were aware, apart from Ireland. And it was sustained, it was supported, it was created by an extraordinary bubble in debt household debt, family debt, personal borrowing. And British household debt in relation to our incomes was again the highest in the developed world. So we had a, an extraordinary bubble in house prices. That was one of the key components of this crisis, here and in the United States and elsewhere. And that bubble was going to burst at some point anyway. And anybody who had looked at a history book, and I fear that the government and many bankers had never read a history book, would have known that these bubbles burst with regularity. If you go back to the 18th century, from on, every roughly 18 years, 17, 18, 19 years, it varies slightly, uh, property prices have surged and fallen, surged and fallen. I bought my first house in Glasgow at the peak of the housing boom in the early 70s and then learnt a few months later that <laughs> prices were collapsing underneath me. I learnt a bitter lesson. But we've had two booms since. But the lending occurred on the assumption that these things never happen, that prices only ever go up and never come down. And bankers assumed that, and a lot of borrowers assumed that, and they poured money into property on the assumption that this is not just a place to live in, but it's a source of wealth, it's a pension, it's an investment. And that was one of the key elements of instability that ultimately precipitated this crash. Uh, the second set of problems related originated in the banking system. Now, of course, we've had financial crises before. They've happened throughout history. Banks have gone through cycles of boom and bust. Uh, if actually, the best account I've read of the current credit crunch uh, was in the pages of John Stuart Mill, the philosopher from the early 19th century. He described exactly what happens when banks carried, get carried away, there's a boom of lending, and then the market goes bust under them. It could be property, it could be gold, it could be anything. The market goes down, they panic, they stop lending, and that in turn precipitates a recession. It's happened over and over again. So a banking crisis occurred. That was the second element. But what was special about this banking crisis was that it was so extraordinary in its scale and extent because of the way in which the banking system has become so interconnected and so complicated. And what happened on this occasion, which makes it different from the John Stuart Mill days, is that it was the sheer complexity of the financial products that were being created. Essentially what happened is that the banking system started acquiring assets, 
the origins of the problem probably lay in the property market, in what we call subprime lending in the United States. And then these assets, as they were to the banks, were sold and sold again. This was new, because usually when banks lend, they keep an eye on their borrowers. It's a personal relationship. But this time, they were sold, so-called securitization. And they were sold, and they were sold, and they were sold again, and split up and subdivided, creating very complex financial instruments. And the complexity of it is, I'll just give a little anecdote to illustrate this. My youngest son is, is a mathematician. He was at Cambridge a few years ago, one of the very bright mathematician. Knew nothing about money. A lovely guy, but knows nothing about money. And needless to say, he was approached by the banks and offered enormous sums of money to come and work for them on the grounds that this mathematical ability could handle, understand, and create these very complicated products. And that was fine when they were being sold and resold and there was a booming market, everybody made a profit through selling them. But what happened when the market started going bad? Just a, a, an image I heard a few weeks ago, which I think illustrated what, what happened. There's a very fine writer on the Financial Times called Gillian Tett, some of you may have come across her work, who's written a brilliant book about this crisis. And she has an image, is that the, the, the banks, particularly the investment banks, were a bit like a sausage factory. They were getting meat from all over the place. You know, this was their, their loans, and they, they got them into the factory. They put a skin around it, which is what you do when you make a sausage, and you sell the sausages into the market, and you make a lot of money from adding value, putting the skin on, making them, manufacturing them. And they were, they were doing brilliantly. The sausage factory was great. Until somebody called out the word BSE. What was BSE in the financial market? Well, of course, it was some of the meat that was bad. There were bad assets. When the United States housing boom burst a few years ago, lots of those subprime borrowers couldn't service their debts. They walked away from them. And of course, the people who hold the debts therefore held a worthless asset. Toxic, toxic debt, as it became called. But the problem was that these products had become so complicated that nobody knew where they were. You know, nobody knew which sausage they were in. And so trust evaporated. You know, BSE, well, you don't go out and consume sausages. BSE in the financial markets, nobody wanted to buy these complicated structured products. And so the people who held them started to panic. And people worried about doing business with them. And throughout 2008, you had a succession of panics as particular institutions became the subject of suspicion, loss of trust. Started with Bear Stearns, remember in the spring of last year, and then it gradually spread through to the Lehman Brothers who collapsed in the autumn, and that spread through to our own banking system. Perhaps I should have prefaced it by the start of this collapse of confidence, of course, was Northern Rock. That was the first bank that felt the impact of this loss of trust. But eventually, last autumn, the collapse in trust affected the whole banking system. And we got to a position in the UK where the British banks were literally within 24 hours of collapse. It wasn't clear at the time, but the Bank of England governor has explained this subsequently, that they'd got to a point where they could no longer borrow overnight. And that was the point at which the government had to intervene. It had to nationalize half the banking system. 
And I think in these days, we now talk about recovery, bank profits, all this kind of thing, returns to normality. It's worth remembering the sheer enormity of what happened. We had half of our banks, which effectively collapsed and had to be taken over. And we're not just talking about a middle-sized country whose banks collapsed. The Royal Bank of Scotland, whose uh, guests we are, uh, was the biggest bank in the world. It was the biggest bank in the world in terms of its balance sheet. And it went down. And other very big banks went down too. And the consequences of that were potentially catastrophic. And there was a crucial point of intervention, which the significance of which I'll talk about later. So those were the two major elements in the crisis. The, the bubble in property, which has subsequently burst. Commercial property prices have now fallen, I think, 40-50%. House prices on average by 20. It's like the odd thing about housing. It doesn't seem to have fully corrected. There's a big story there, but the bubble has certainly burst. And we've had the collapse of the banking system caused in the way that I've just described. And these two things fed into each other and helped create the recession that became evident round about Christmas the new year. People started to worry, started to panic. What's going on? Am I going to keep my job? People started to worry about their own indebtedness. They stopped spending. When people stopped spending, factories no longer have anything to produce for. Uh, companies started going bust, laying people off. That in turn created weakness and demand. And so the recession spread. And it spread from the uh, epicenter of the crisis, which was essentially the Anglo-Saxon countries, it spread to countries like Germany that were exporting to us, and then to Japan that was exporting to us, to coastal China, and then eventually also it spread to the developing countries who were selling us primary commodities that fell in price. So it became global. And that's how, how the whole process uh, generated momentum. But what's happened since then? Go back to my image of the heart attack, and the heart attack victim being stabilized in hospital. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about what governments did. Was it the right thing? Have they done the right thing? What are the consequences going to be? I think the first bit of that issue is to ask, well, should governments have done anything? There is a, there is a view. It isn't expressed politically with any conviction. Um, I think the Conservatives occasionally hint at this. The German establishment certainly is of this view. There is a view, which is called the Austrian view of economics, uh, that government shouldn't interfere. Let this burn itself out. Let it burn itself out. Uh, governments have taken the opposite view, that they had to do something dramatic. But it's worth remembering that there is an alternative view out there that governments should have let it happen, let it burn itself out, and one of their major reasons for arguing that, and it's one of the undercurrents in the public debate, is that if governments intervene in these circumstances, they will simply perpetuate the problem. It's a phrase is called moral hazard. And the best way of, I think, illustrating the concept of moral hazard is a statement that was made in the 19th century by a man called Herbert Spencer, who you may have heard of, who was a, a Darwinian. And he had a wonderfully pungent sentence. He said, if governments rescue people from the consequences of their own folly, uh, we shall populate the world with fools. And that put in a particularly pungent way 
is what the Austrians argue. And they say, governments have made a terrible mistake. They should never have intervened. But that's an interesting footnote. Governments have intervened. They've intervened on a massive, massive scale. And we're going to live with the consequences of it. What governments have done, or central banks actually, more than governments, but it will, I use governments in the broader sense, they've done several things. First of all, most important, money, monetary expansion. What we've had is a massive monetarist response to this crisis. People use the word Keynes. A Keynes it hasn't actually been about John Maynard Keynes, a man called Milton Friedman you may have heard of. It's his ideas that have dominated this crisis. And Milton Friedman argued that what caused the Great Recession in the 1930s was the contraction of credit, and therefore governments have got to step in and create credit, make money cheap. And that's what's happened. Central banks cut interest rates to zero. It's created in enormous amounts of trying to create enormous amounts of credit. You probably saw last week the governor of the Bank of England saying that the British economy is still so weak that he has to continue printing money. That's, I put it in quotation marks. This is not Robert Mugabe and the printing presses, but it is deliberately, artificially creating credit as a way of trying to pump the economy up, trying to stop a downward spiral of falling prices, falling output, falling jobs, falling confidence. And the government is using, through the Bank of England, monetary expansion. Not just Britain, the Americans are doing it. Uh, other countries are doing it too. But we had a massive experiment in the creation of money as a way of staving off this crisis. And it is a very unusual thing. It's never been done before in this way. It's an experiment without precedent. And it seems to be working. But we don't know what the long-term consequences are. Some people feel it will overreact and create inflation. Well, we don't know, but so far it seems to be working. So governments have used massive expansion of money. One of the consequences of that, or indirect consequences in Britain, is we've had a big devaluation of the currency. I don't know whether anybody noticed. Unless you travel abroad, you probably haven't. About 30% devaluation of the currency. It's been very helpful. Tourism, some industries, have all been helped by it. It's all a consequence of this drastic injection of money into the economy. That's one thing that's happened. The other thing governments have done, and ours particularly, and it's true everywhere else to varying degrees, is running a deficit, running a budget deficit as a way of countering the recession. In Britain, this has had a dramatic character, and also in the United States. Uh, we are now, as a government, borrowing something like 13% of the economy, GDP, is being borrowed from markets. That may not mean anything to you. But it's worth thinking about where this came from. What has happened is there's been a complete collapse of tax revenue in the UK. The share of the British economy in tax is now as low as it's been ever since the days of Harold Macmillan. You may not feel that, Britain doesn't feel a low-tax country, but you're actually living in one. It wasn't deliberately created. It happened because the revenue base of government collapsed. And it's collapsed because so much government revenue was hinged to the fortunes of the city and the financial services sector, which has collapsed. So we've had a collapse of revenue. At the same time, government spending has remained at quite a high level, about half of GDP, 48, 49%. 
and it's rising because in a recession more people become unemployed, the government's trying to keep the economy going, so we have this enormous budget deficit, enormous borrowing requirement. In the short run, it doesn't matter. Immediately, it doesn't matter. Governments can borrow at the moment very cheaply. Uh, people, by that I mean financial institutions, are willing to buy government bonds cheaply. The people who have surplus savings, Chinese government institutions, among others, are perfectly happy to invest their money in this British and American paper. But there will come a time, it may be months away, maybe years, we don't know, when this will become much, much more difficult and it will have to be dealt with, and that gigantic deficit will have to be worked down. And this was going to be the issue which will dominate British politics as well as British economics in the next five or ten years. How do you do it? Now, some people say, well, this is a problem about government debt. I don't want to pedantic, but let me make a distinction between deficits and debt, the risk of boring you with um, verbiage here. Think, think of a model of a, a bath, right? Um, the water's flowing in, and think about the level. The, the, the economists call it the distinction between the flow and the stock. The stock's the level, the flow's the water coming in through the bath. The British bath is not very full. The level of debt, of government debt, government debt, not private debt, government debt, is actually quite modest. It's one of the lowest in the developed world, in fact. But the water coming in through the taps is coming in at a horrendous rate. This is the borrowing, the flow. And we're going to have to deal with it. Uh, and how do you deal with it rationally? Well, you don't start excavating all the water from the bath. That's not rational because it's not very full. But what you do have to do is to turn off the tap. And in the next few years, there's going to be, have to be a major compression of government spending or tax increases or some combination in order to get that down again. So that's the policy position. Let me just in the last two or three minutes, I don't want to talk for too long, I'm going to give you a chance to ask questions, just raise one other big policy issue and then finish up summarizing what I think needs to be done now. The, the other big policy question that's been left over by this crisis is what do we do about the banks? What do we do about our friends who are hosting us tonight? They've been nationalized in effect. Uh, the whole of the banking system is guaranteed by the government. It's underwritten by you. Some of it's owned by you, some of it's guaranteed by you. And there is an important question, which is, what do you do with these organizations, and how do you stop them repeating the disasters that have occurred? The counterintuitive point about what we should be doing with the banks now, I believe, is that we should be getting them lending. Now, you may think, well, God, what's this guy saying? I mean, you know, we've had a debt problem. Why is he saying they should lend more? Well, the reason is that the banks have overreacted. They lent prolifically, often carelessly, in the boom periods, and now, partly encouraged, I have to say, by government regulation, I'm not just blaming bankers for this, they're now hoarding cash. They've reacted. They've gone to the other extreme. Instead of being offered £10,000 through the post, as many of you probably were a few years ago, it's now very, very difficult for a very good British company, totally solvent, good order books, to get credit, except on very, very tough terms. There's been an overreaction. 
So one of the key jobs of government, which I don't think they're doing very well, actually, but that's in parenthesis, is to make sure that they maintain flows of lending to good companies. But then the question is, how do you stop them repeating all the mistakes of history? Well, that's a question of regulation. It's making sure that people don't, in future, have bonuses which encourage them, as they have done, to take risks with their own institutions, bringing them down, underwritten by the taxpayer. So you have to have some intervention. You have to have discipline. And I view, believe also that the very big banks have to be broken up. I mean, it's a controversial view. Not everybody holds it. But I don't think you can have very large institutions like this one, which are simultaneously big investment banks, what the governor of the Bank of England calls casinos, perhaps a bit unfairly, but high-risk institutions combined with ordinary banks lending to, to individuals and businesses. I don't think you combine them, because if they crash, then you, the taxpayer, ultimately underwrite them, and that's not the sustainable position. So that has to be reformed. Right, just finally, what do we do next? What are the priorities? What should government be doing? First of all, um, unemployment is rising, is going to rise. Mainly young people, I suspect people, most people here don't experience unemployment, but if you're young, it is high probability of being unemployed. Students, 16-year-olds, are going out on the streets without any prospect of work. I don't know whether you picked up the news two days ago, British Telecom cutting, was it 30,000, 40,000 jobs, and stopping any graduate recruitment. So these kids are not, will not have work. Even if the economy recovers, this problem will continue. So governments have now to focus on that problem, and it's partly a question of making sure people are able to be accommodated in higher or further education, if that's what they're qualified to do, making sure that we have good community work schemes based on the 80s model, paying people to do something useful rather than just paying them to do nothing. That's question. first task. Second task is getting the budget in order. It's a long-term process. It's going to be very painful. It's very difficult to see how any government, unless it's got a very strong mandate, is going to be able to achieve it because it involves more budget discipline than we've ever experienced probably in our lifetime. Thirdly, it means a new regime for the banks, preventing this happening again. All, all I, I sense, unfortunately, business as usual is the mantra. It's absolutely wrong and very dangerous. And then fourthly and finally, we do need to think about a new kind of British economy that isn't over-dependent on financial services, rediscovers some of those things that we took rather too casually, like science and technology and industry that were allowed to wither. They're going to have to come back. Building long-term infrastructure, environmentally important projects, things that have been neglected, rebalancing the economy in a fundamental long-term way. So thank you very much for your patience and attention. Thank you. Excellent. Really good. Vince, thank you very much indeed, and I'm sure the warm applause uh, signals the high regard with which the audience has greeted your remarks. They're very trenchant analysis and very perceptive perspectives for the future. Now, it's open to you folks in the audience to ask questions. I see a hand raised there. Let's take two or three, then. In a, in a, there first, please. Yep. Oh, hang, hang on until the microphone comes your way, and then we'll take there and then there. Thanks. Yeah. 
Thank you. I wonder, Mr. Cable, if you could maybe briefly sketch out <coughs> what might have happened had the uh, Austrian approach been taken and had the governments not, in fact, intervened. And if you could briefly say whether you think that would have been a desirable course, and if not, why not? Let's, let's take another, another question or two first. Yeah. Yeah, please. Um, I wanted to ask about household debt, which has driven much of the economic contraction. Um, the household debt has collapsed. Is this because banks aren't lending and you want to get banks lending? Or is it in fact because for the first time in a generation or two, people want to save more? So what's driving this contraction in household debt? And what level of household debt is good? I mean, how much contraction is, is sustainable? Okay, two fairly huge questions. Let, let, let's, let's go to, to Vince with those two, please. Well, well, the first point is, do I believe that governments should be intervening or not? And the answer is, I believe they should be. And I think that, although I'm very critical of many of the things the governments, this government's done, I think they were basically right to adopt a very activist response to the crisis, as true also of the Americans, and indeed everybody else, even the Germans who dragged their feet, have been pretty active. Um, and probably the most active government has been the Chinese. I mean, we have this slightly ironical situation that it's the Chinese Communist Party that's keeping the world capitalism afloat um, <laughs> through massive monetary expansion, massive budget spending. I mean, they're doing it obviously for their own reasons, but it's having a big impact on the world economy. Um, but your question is, would it have been better to have... Sorry, that's slightly funny acoustics here. Would it have been better to have done nothing? I, no, I don't think so. Uh, the pain would, of just letting this crisis happen would have been horrendous. It would have been the 1930s plus. And it would have been plus because the world these days is much more interconnected than it was in the 1930s. And, of course, when things... When you punish foolish economic decisions, the people who get hurt are often innocent people. I mean, if a, a business makes a bad decision, uh, it isn't just the businessmen who get hurt and the shareholders, it's the workers who may well have, you know, a completely innocent party to all this. Um, if um, a bank goes down, it, it may well be bad news for the shareholders, but it's also for their customers and their depositors, unless they're protected by government. And if a lot of people get hurt, um, the consequences then are rising unemployment. With the rising unemployment, you get more and more people unable to service their mortgages, so they lose their homes, and you get those problems of repossession, which I, I fear are going to happen on a big scale next year, incidentally, but not on the scale they could have happened if we just let the crisis evolve. So we have avoided a catastrophe, actually. Uh, we're not in an Armageddon situation. Uh, the, world, the end of the world isn't nigh and mainly because governments have intervened in, in this very dramatic way. Um, in terms of household debt, I think what's happened is that a lot of households have become alarmed about the extent to which they, they got overcommitted, mainly through mortgage borrowing. Uh, at the moment, uh, many mortgage borrowers are being cushioned because of tracker mortgages. You know, if you borrowed uh, you're currently paying negligible interest. Uh, and a lot of people on mortgages are currently being protected by very low interest rates because people who are saving are being hurt. But uh, the borrowers are being at least temporarily protected. Uh, I fear in two or three years' time, when interest rates goes up to normal, a lot of those people with very high level of debts are then going to really hit pain. And that's one of the reasons I don't believe in this miraculous recovery. Because even, even if the economy does pick up in the next year or so, there's a whole lot of problems down the line. 
which are what happens to these highly indebted households once interest rates go up again. Uh, what happens when businesses suddenly start having to pay much more for their capital to invest. Uh, so I think the answer to your question is that there is a lot of forthcoming grief associated with household debt that people haven't yet fully experienced. Thanks for that, Vince. I see a hand raised eagerly. A couple of hands raised there. If we can, the, the lady in the brown and then the, the, the gentleman there. Let, let's take the two in that same row. Yep, that's it. Thank you very much. Um, I, I'd like to ask you, what further regulation do you think should be put in place that has not been put in place yet in respect of controlling the banks. The banking, okay. And let's take the gentleman there as well, please. I, I mean, I accept that um, in the next sort of five, ten years, there has to be greater regulations of financial services. Government needs to play um, a greater role, as does do the banks themselves. But I think the one group that's missed from the equation are, are us as consumers. The banks didn't have guns to our heads when they gave us the £10,000 credit cards. We were the ones who actually spent the money. And does there need to be a new sort of consumer, new world order as well as result of this crisis? Thank you for that. Maybe to take those two together, the, the regulation of the banks and consumer behaviour. Uh, well, I, 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 I do get a, a bit irritated with political colleagues, uh, and I'm talking about my own party, but generally, who say that the answer to this crisis is to have more regulation, because that isn't actually the issue, I don't think. Um, the fact was that we, we had extensive regulation of banks. It just didn't work. Uh, and th I think the crucial distinction between the word regulation and supervision, what happened was that the British financial regulators, and because they're American equivalents too, America had even more financial regulation than we did, and it didn't work there, right? Is that what happened was that the British regulators, the Financial Service Authority, had a great deal of power to intervene in the banks and to uh, expect their books. They were crawling all over them. But when they saw the problem, well, sorry, they, when they looked at the problem, they didn't see it, if you get the distinction. I'll just give you a couple of anecdotes. Um, I, I got quite heavily involved in the whole Northern Rock problem, and a lot of us were warning about the Northern Rock problem a long time before it happened, because they were lending these 125% mortgages. Completely insane. Uh, that, uh, and I was, uh, I, I was being told off by various people for helping to for precipitating the crisis when it came in Northern Rock. And I had a call one day from the financial regulator, the head of it, um, the chairman. And he said, what are you doing, you know, talking about the Northern Rock in this negative way? We in the FSA have studied that bank. It is a very good bank. They lend very responsibly. And, you know, the fact is people at the heart of the system didn't see what the problem was. The same happened with HBOS you know, Crosby and his successor. Um, Crosby actually was an extraordinarily bright guy. He was very different from Applegarth, who ran Northern Rock. Crosby was a brilliant mathematician who had a very clear understanding of what he was doing, actually. And I had a talk to him several years before HBOS went down. And he knew the risks they were running and was quite frank about it, but made the point that, well, if I don't do it, you know, the board will get rid of me and I'll get somebody else who's a more aggressive... Uh, Banker. But the, again, the warning signs about HBOS were being recorded in the FSA three or four years before the crisis burst. And the people who were dealing with it chose to disregard it. So it wasn't lack of regulation, it was lack of effective supervision. 
and what do you need to do about it now? Well, I, I partly summarized in what I said. I think it's partly a question of changing, restraining the bonus system so that bankers are not encouraged to take excessive risk. It's partly, I think, breaking the banks up. I think there are problems that are coming down the track that people are not focusing on. There's a lot of problems to do with what are called complex derivatives. Um, Warren Buffett, who was the leading American private investor, once said that if the current crisis is an atom bomb explosion, uh, the derivatives markets or the credit swap derivatives market is the hydrogen bomb. And the hydrogen bomb actually hasn't gone off. Uh, and it could. It could. Unless there is a proper system for trading these very complex products so they don't explode in future. So regulation has to be more intelligent, has to be more focused. It's not a question of just having more of it. Briefly, Vince, on the point about the consumer behavior, the, the point, you know, the gun, the gun was not placed to the head? Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, but I think there is a difference between <coughs> lenders who have a who are professionals, who after all do understand money, or are supposed to, and borrowers. Go back to the point I made earlier on, that 85% of all British debt, household debt, is mortgage debt. Uh, and if you're a, a young family trying to buy a house, you know, you have to buy at the prevailing price. And you go along to your bank or building society or broker, and you say, you know, get me, get me the mortgage that will help me to get into the housing market. So it, people, it is true, people went into this with their eyes wide open in many cases, but very often, given the prevailing level of house prices, had very little choice. And that's what worries me when I hear on the news, as I do at the moment, house prices are rising, this is good, good news. news yeah. Yeah, I mean, it isn't good news yeah. for millions of people who can't get into the market. It's yeah. disastrous news. And they either will be shut out of the market, or the market will recover and they will borrow again at very high multiples of their income and recreate this danger. Vince, do you think the bankers, the, the individual bankers were individually culpable? I mean, what would you say to Sir Fred Goodwin were he here tonight? He's actually, he's not, is he? Well, just, well, just, <laughs> just, just check quickly. Well, Fred Goodwin made one terrible error, which was the ABN AMRO takeover. I mean, there were a lot of other things as well, but that was one really terrible mistake. And there, but for the grace of God, went Barclays Many because others. they almost okay. got it. And they actually, the level of irresponsibility, I think, in the Barclays was actually much bigger than in NatWest. But they, it was NatWest that caught the crisis. Okay, thanks for that. Who's next? Hand eagerly raised there, and then let's take one here to spread it around the room a bit. Just the ge gentleman there, please. Yes, please. Um, I was very concerned a few weeks back when there seemed to be a huge gulf of opinion opening up between the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister and the Governor of the Bank of England over the future economic strategy for the country. I, you know, the, the bank, Governor of the Bank of England made some remarkably blunt criticisms and I can never ever remember this happening before and I just would like to know how you, how you view this situation. Okay, let's take the other question here please. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah, there. Go on. Uh, I'd like to ask you uh, to look into your crystal ball, and with all this, uh, these billions that have been paid out to the banks, either in direct uh, buying in for, sh for equity or uh, on some of the other instruments that have been used, 
what do you think the odds are on eventually the taxpayer getting all the money back? Ah, two, two good ones, yes. Yes, well, let me take the second one first. Um, I, I, I think if they were properly managed, there is a, a good prospect that the taxpayer could get their money back. But there is a dilemma here. Uh, the government, and I, I guess this is true if the Tories were to come in, um, is desperate to privatise them as quickly as possible. And there are already well-established stories in the city that brokers have been sounding out about the sale of Northern Rock. Now, I have no philosophical objection to banks going back into the private sector. There's no problem with that. But it's got to be timed properly. If, they, if they're sold now, they will be sold at a very heavy discount in a very weak market. And the taxpayer will be landed with all the rubbish, in effect because the bad, the bad bank within these banks will be stripped out and left to the taxpayer. That's absolutely wrong. If these banks are going to be turned around and become profitable for the taxpayer, they may have to be run for many years. The experience of other countries, Korea, Sweden, Israel, even the United States to some degree, all of which have had bank collapses which have been dealt with by bank nationalization, is that they probably have to hold on to them for 10 years or something of that order. But I think if they were properly managed in the public interest, rather than sold off in some fire sale to raise a bit of cash in a hurry, uh, then it is possible that the taxpayer could ultimately do very well out of all this. Um, in terms of the arguments between the governor and the, the prime minister and the chancellor, I think what the, I don't know what's going on between them. Um, I think the Bank of England governor is pretty cheesed off. He felt at various points that he was being made the scapegoat for this crisis. Um, but I don't know. I am, I'm not privy to their conversations. I think there is quite an interesting rift, if that's what it is, between Darling and Brown. Whereas I think Darling is trying to be honest and saying that, look, the next few years are going to be very, very difficult. There will be cuts but these cuts can be managed properly in a sensible way. And he wants to contrast what he would do with what the Conservatives would do in terms of prioritizing, choosing social priorities and so on. Whereas I think the Prime Minister is still in a state of denial and trying to argue that there aren't any cuts to come. I think, I think that's the tension between them. And I very much support Alistair Darling's approach. I think he's, he's right on that, if that's what he's arguing. Okay. Thanks for that. Uh, question there, please. And then, yeah, that, that one there. And then let's take the hand away at the back, please, next. Thanks. <coughs> Excuse me. In your, yeah, it's on. In your analysis of the problem, you drew a lot of attention to new financial instruments and that this is a time and a hydrogen bomb waiting to go off. In your analysis of what we ought to do, would you propose any new forms of control on the types of financial instruments that banks can develop and sell. Good question. Thanks for that. Let's take the question at the back there, please. Yeah. Um, just in light of the last sort of year's intensive coverage of all of this, um, I wonder if you can tell us what your opinions are about how we can better, well, educate and train the uh, financial services, for want of a better phrase, and also the management of the financial services. There's a lot of talk about regulation, about supervision. 
but ultimately it comes back to something that you mentioned yourself there. The, the head of HBOS said, if I am going to do that, the shareholders, yeah. the board are going to ask for somebody, a more aggressive banker to come along. Um, we can't endanger our, our financial institutions to this degree, but our own bankers don't even seem to understand that. So thank you very much, Vince. Well, there's a slightly flippant answer to the question about the education of bankers. I don't know whether, how many people in the audience follow, have, have I got news for you, but there was a... Uh, a few months ago, they had a, one of those, you know, they put up four pictures and they'd choose the odd one out. And I think they put up Fred Goodwin, Applegarth and Crosby and, and Terry Wogan. And they said, which is the odd one out? And it turned out to be Terry Wogan because he was the only qualified banker. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but that's, um, which was true in a very narrow sense that he had a, a bank, banking qualification. Um, I mean, I suppose the, the sensible response to that was that the others were probably highly qualified accountants or auditors or something. But no, the, there, is, there is an issue about training. But I, I, I think the, the problem with the banks was not so much that the bankers were untrained. I think the real villains, in many ways, were not the high-profile people like Goodwin and Crosby. It was the boards of directors. See, the boards of directors are there to make sure that their managers do not misbehave and get out of control. That's what they're there for. That's what gov corporate governance is supposed to mean. And the people who stand behind them are the big insurance companies and the pension funds who have all your savings in them. And they actually own these institutions because they have the shares. And they are the people who appoint the directors. And there was a terrible failure of corporate governance in the UK. Not just in the UK, but particularly here. And whereas it's convenient to blame some of these individuals, many of whom were grossly irresponsible, I think Applegarth, people like that, were just greedy and foolish, but um, there was a much deeper and bigger problem within, within the system. Um, sorry, new instruments. I don't want to get into a terribly technical issue here, but these very, very complicated products, what, what was called the hydrogen bomb, um, uh, the, the, what the, the, the problem is that at the moment they're so complicated that they can't be bought and sold. So if an institution, a bank, is caught with one of these, a, a big portfolio of these things, and they turn out to be bad, and they haven't offset it, hedged it in the jargon, uh, then that institution is potentially at risk. You can remove the risk, you can take the uh, fuse out of the hydrogen bomb, if these products can be traded in a market properly. And one of the things which was agreed at the G20 summit was that markets should be created in Britain and the United States and in the European Union for these derivatives. It, nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. And I worry about that. And the reason it hasn't happened, one of the reasons it hasn't happened is that the big banks have a very strong vested interest in creating the, keeping these existing instruments because they make a lot of money out of producing very complex products for particular customers. They don't want to create a market for them. So there is a, a real conflict of interest taking place and a dangerous one and I think the debate will move on to that territory uh, in due course. Vince, what percentage of the storm, the crisis, would you say was globally driven, looking at the UK, what percentage was driven by UK government actions? Uh, I, th I think in, in the case of the UK, both were involved. I mean, I know it, in, in political debate, 
It's. I'm asking a genuine answer, not. No, I'm sure you'll give a, I'm not, not a partisan. I'm trying to preface it by saying yeah. that the political debate is it's all your fault, Gordon. No, it isn't. Correct. And actually, there's a, there is a bit of each. There was a big, big failure in Britain, British policy, which was failure to recognise the scale of the bubble in the housing market, the growth of personal debt, and the extent to which the economy was becoming over-dependent on taxes from the city. That was the terrible miscalculation the government made. It was complacent. I mean, you can understand it. Okay, everything's going yeah. well. You don't want to take away the, the punch bowl. Yeah. But it was a serious miscalculation. But of course, it's been compounded by a global problem. Thanks for that. Let's take another couple of questions from the audience. One, one down there and the one in the front row, please. Yeah. The front row there, yeah, thanks. Oh, either way, that's fine. In Scotland, we've lost two long-established banks, in name at least, the Bank of Scotland and the Trustee Savings Bank. We've also lost the Dunfermline Building Society, in name, and elsewhere, the Alliance of Leicester, the Abbey, and Bradford and Bingley are now owned in Spain. Would you comment, please? Let's take the other question. The gentleman in the front row over there, please. Yes, sir. Um, I was wondering, what do you make of the claim that the uh, British economy may suffer uh, a lost decade in a similar manner to the Japanese economy from the early 90s? Thanks for that. Two good questions. Well, there is certainly a risk of the latter happening. There is a, there is a serious risk because it's very difficult now to see whether the sustained growth in the British economy is going to come from. We talked, there was a question a few moments ago about the, the hangover of household debt. A lot of British households are going to be very reluctant in future to borrow lots of money if they can avoid it and uh, going in for another consumer splurge. Uh, British companies are going to be risk averse, I think, in the current situation. The government has got no capacity to increase spending and investment. Uh, so, you know, where does the growth come from? Some of it's coming in the short run on the back of the devaluation of the currency and that's stimulating a few sectors. But there is a danger that these problems, the need to unwind the enormous budget deficit, the need to reverse this policy of printing money or quantitative easing, these things are going to make it very, very difficult to get any real momentum in the British economy in years to come. There are some people who would say, well, actually, that's not a bad thing. We perhaps need to rethink what we're all about. And, you know, there's environmental sustainability and growth isn't an inherently good thing. There is something in those arguments. But I, I, I do worry that if, 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 if what could happen is a prolonged period of stagnation, as you say, a Japanese-type problem, uh, with very large residues of, of unemployment. Uh, your question about international ownership, ownership yeah. I, 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 I would put it, and I, I do this rather delicately, but in terms of the role of Scotland and the banking system, because the RBS was the biggest bank in the world. It was a Scottish bank, and it went down. Um, the Bank of Scotland uh, had terrible problems. I mean, it was the Bank of Scotland rather than Halifax that was the bad bank, mainly because of the activities of its commercial lending operations. Uh, and Dunfermline was the one building society which more than any other mismanaged its affairs. And this has done a terrible damage to Scotland's financial reputation, you know, one has to say. Uh, it isn't, of course, just a Scottish management failure. There was a failure of supervision in London. 
um, both by headquarters and by the, the regulators. But the, 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 you know, the questions do need to be asked about why this happened here. Um, if I can just make one rather controversial point about the Scottish economy, it's worth remembering that the Royal Bank of Scotland, um, its assets in liabilities, balance sheet, was about one and a half times as big as the British economy, which makes it about 15 times the scale of the Scottish economy. If Scotland had been independent in an economic sense, it would have been ruined by the Royal Bank of Scotland collapse in the same way that Iceland has been bankrupted by the failure of its banks. Uh, I don't want to draw too many conclusions from that. You, but you it's describe Scotland as, a, as a, large, a large bank with a small country attached. It, it yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> that's what it was, I'm afraid. <laughs> I was uh, hoping you hadn't remembered that phrase. But, uh, that was your speech in Perth. It was a rather uh, good speech. Uh, Time for one, probably literally one more, please. Let, 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 the gentleman there, please, thanks. With the blue shirt on. Uh, could it not be argued that the breakdown in cor corporate uh, governance that you referred to earlier uh, was to some extent inevitable because the, with the system as it was, the remu remuneration of the director's concern was at least indirectly related to the level of irresponsibility that they exercised? Yes, that, that's true. Um, one of the, it's, it's only sort of half answering your question, but I think one of the lessons about corporate governance is the need to be much more transparent about who is paid and who's paid what. One, although I've blamed bank directors for m failures of oversight, one of the good things about... Uh, uh, One of, one, of the, one of the positive things about the British system of corporate governance is that we do actually know how much bank directors and other directors are paid. I mean, you, you ask your question because you know and you can find out from the annual accounts how much an individual director is paid in pay and bonuses. The problem is that a lot of the most highly paid people in the banking system, their remuneration is concealed. The people who are running Barcap, Barclays Capital, which is trying to be the world's largest investment bank, they're probably earning 15, 20 million a year, but they're not directors, and so you don't know and I don't know how much they're paid or what risks are being taken by them. And I, I, I believe that one of the big changes that has to happen is we've got to have much, much more transparency and openness about the way in which people in highly paid jobs, and particularly bonus paid jobs, actually paid. Transparency has uh, flushed out an awful lot of misdealing in, in Westminster and uh, there's a lot to be said for applying the same level of transparency in the financial sector. Vince, thank you very much indeed. We've had some excellent transparency this evening. Um, Vince, Vince and I are going to pop next door into the signing tent where he'll be signing copies of his book and I'll be watching him do it. Um, no, seriously, the copies of the book available next door, get them signed. Um, I'm going to draw it to a close. Thank you to yourselves. Excellent questions, really superb. May I offer a personal vote of thanks to the Royal Bank of Scotland. May they thrive and prosper <laughs> for as long as they hold my mortgage. Um, seriously, may I thank Cornelian Asset Managers, the sponsors for this evening. 
Will you join me in thanking our guest in a simply excellent session, Vince Cable? <laughs> Superb. Thank you very much.